My guest today is one of those people who managed to achieve so much in his 20s and 30s that they make the rest of us look downright lazy. I'm excited to have Radek Sali on the show today. Radek is well known for his work at Swiss Vitamins. He was key to the company's early growth and he would later go on to become the CEO. A few years ago, he and his colleagues sold their final stake in the company they had built and Radek went out on his own to build a family office that invests in all sorts of ventures that are all focused on wellness. And one of his key investments was to seed an impact investment fund. It's called, wait for it, the Impact Fund. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Radek is a big picture thinker and he knows how to manage a dynamic organization. But as I did research for this chat and after speaking to people who work with him, it became clear that at the core of Radek's power is his ability to nurture the people around him and to promote culture above all else. And there's ample proof in the fact that so many of Radek's colleagues from his previous role have moved over to help him build his next venture. This one was a real thrill. It was great to understand the future of business through the eyes of a pioneer like Radek, to understand the potential for all enterprises, big and small, to move towards measuring their impact. So let's dive in. There's links and contact details on my website at johntreadgold.com. If you want to leave a comment or a review about the show, then iTunes is the best place for that. But for now, enough out of me. Here's my conversation with Radek Sally. Here we go. Radek, you've had a super interesting career. There's so many things I'm keen to discuss with you today. I want to dig into your private equity investing and your work with the B team. But before we get into that, I'd like to ask you about the days after you finally wrapped up the sale of Swiss, the vitamin company. Uh, this was your baby. You built it into a, a global success story. And I'm sure running it dominated your life. So what was it like when you, when you stepped away? Was it a shock to the system or did you just play a whole lot of golf? <laughs> it was a shock to the system. Uh, it was a shock in many ways. I mean, if you're working as hard as we did as a team for as long as we did, uh, with the intensity that we were working at, it definitely felt like we had put our absolutely best foot forward and, and done everything we could to ensure the result that we did get in the end. And I was spent emotionally fatigued from what was really a five-year process from go to woe in selling the business and the business exploded uh, with growth, but through that growth phase and had a whole lot of growing pains and we went close to the edge a number of times in terms of the business being able to continue to, to finance itself and go forward in its format. Uh, and then also we, we, we went global too with our business and that's taxing in itself being away from home for two weeks of every uh, month. So as I always say that if you're wanting to be successful in business, you need to make the choice to become elite. And we demanded that of our, our leaders in our business, much like a, an Olympic professional makes the choice to be a champion or whatever they, they're going to do. They have to make sacrifices and, 
and to be the absolute world's best, you need to do everything you can to deliver on that. Now, it's different in business. You need everything going well. You need your private life in good shape. So you, you, when you're powering down and, and getting the head right for work, you've got that ability to do it, but you're also able to come back and, and give your absolute best and work and feel that you're living your purpose and um, you're able to give over and above. And that's when an elite outcome happens. You know, working seven days a week and with everything that was going on, by the time we'd sold our business, all I felt like doing was not celebrating, but enjoying some chicken soup with my wife, which is what I rung her and asked her to do for me when I got home that evening. Sacrifice is something we hear about a fair bit in terms of making it and then competing at the elite level. But of course, to make it there, there's a whole lot of skills that you need and every CEO is different. So I wonder, what do you think were the key skills that allowed you to, to get that and to perform at your best? I think for me was always understanding that you'll get the best out of people if you create an environment where people love being a part of it and they feel like that they're driven and excited by everything we do and, and they've got leadership that, has empathy, is prepared to admit when things are going wrong, striving every day to make the workplace something great. I always reference going to a personal trainer. If you went into a personal trainer and you did 10 push-ups and, and three push-ups in, they said to you, you look tired today, you're not going to get through this session. You're not going to perform, are you? And a lot of workplaces are that way, Ben, where people aren't encouraging each other, aren't demanding the best from each other and looking to support each other to constructively go forward. And they're in relationships. And, and again, I, I use simple analogies to kind of bring this to practical understanding that you know, we've all had a bad relationship in our lives, whether it be a, a past girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife. And it's funny, in that bad relationship, you're both not as good people as you could be. And in a great relationship, you bring out the best in each other. And you know, I've had one of those bad relationships and people didn't tell me until after we broke up how much better I am and that other person was as a result of us not being together. And, and a lot of workplaces are that bad relationship where you ask people about how work's going and they go, it's okay or it's not so good or they're not inspired by it. It's not bringing out the best in them. And gee, life is truly wasted when that's occurring because we're spending most of our waking hours in the workplace in a bad relationship. So we need to make sure that as leaders, as CEOs of our business, we provide for the best. And as a result of that, we will have a much better workplace and probably a much better society too. That's so refreshing to hear you first, you know, dive into talking about your people and, and how to look after your people when, you know, asked about the role as a leader. Because I think, you know, all too often people will jump to sort of deal making or the, the finance side of things. But um, great to hear that looking after your people will, of course, end up, you know, they'll look after your customers and, and they'll look after your shareholders. So that seems to be the focus and, and drive and empathy and, and helping them find their purpose. How do you think that's being managed in, in other big Australian businesses? Do you think, you know, there are some that are, are falling away and, and can you, I mean, you know, you never really know how the, the back end of these businesses work, but can you kind of identify the ones that are doing well and can see that they've got that people focus? 
Well, it, you know, for us, it was our values at Swiss and it's the values that drives our, our investment group like Warrior and it's people, principles and passion coming for profit. If you get those three Ps right, the profit will follow. And what I'm starting to see and, and what I've been pleasantly surprised by as I invest my time in things like the B team and, and hear from leading CEOs from around the country and, and and chair people and they're seeing the same thing that unless your people are happy they have purpose and thoroughly engaged your business won't perform and things have changed a lot where you can turn up to business in your suit as the leader and suit up and say that you're just doing this all for your family at home you can't get away with that anymore our team and our people in our businesses demand far more authenticity and that's a real responsibility that we all have and, and it's something that's permeating. And yeah, look, we don't see that in politics at the moment. There's some great opportunity for politics to learn from some of the changes that are going on in business. But the fact is that businesses are more connected with the general public and have a better understanding of getting behind things that are working rather than reacting to things that are just broken and investing in things that are working and doing more of it unlike government, which is more of a in, in reaction mode and, and reacting to, to crisis rather than getting behind things that are working really well and investing more in that. So I'm heartened by what I see through things like the B team and I'm heartened by so many companies aspiring to be best employers like Swiss was for a number of years. And I think that list and any list are where people are applying to show that culture is the major driver in their business and they're very aware of it, are businesses that we should all admire and, and they're the businesses of the future. Good. And this focus on culture comes through a lot. And, and I just wonder where that comes from. I mean, you started at Swiss, I believe, in your 20s. And so it's, you know, it's filled up a huge part of your life. But winding back to try and get a feel for, you know, where this perspective came from, what were you like as a kid? Were you always kind of, you know, getting to know everybody? Were you a people person? I think a really good example is that uh, my first job out of school was uh, at Village Roadshow and I was doing university as well as uh, working in the candy bar. What I quickly learned is that I was paying for my university course and I was being paid for the University of Life course at Village. And yes, it was a casual job and, and, and most people would go into that casual job just to earn money for a means to do whatever they wanted to do on with their spare time. I saw it as an opportunity, uh, which is a little bit of a different perspective, to learn the trade and the fundamentals of business and the dynamics of managing people. And the great thing about doing that at that age is you're actually the same age or people are older than you that you have to manage. Um, and some are younger, but that dynamic of having to manage your peers that you go out for a beer with on that weekend and then having to manage them at work to get them to upsell or do a stock take or care about cleaning a cinema properly and leading them to do that was a really fine balance. So you had to be really authentic. And so that taught me from a very early age to don't be someone that you don't want to be led by. Be someone that people want to connect with and genuinely have empathy for them and watch how people fly as a result of that. Yeah, that's quite profound to have appreciated the power of, I guess, influence and, and managing people at that young age. How then did you end up at Swiss as, as being one of the, the key people at, at the founding there? Yeah, so I was at Village and had been there for over 10 years. And it, it just got to a point where 
you know, I was applying for roles within Village, like marketing roles, and and I wouldn't even get an interview for them. You know, I was an ops guy, and it's seen as only that, and very good at that, and open cinemas. Uh, in, in countries overseas and, and nearly every cinema throughout Melbourne, I was involved in opening uh, throughout my time there. And I was, I was great at that, but I was put in a bit of a pigeonhole and I felt that it, unless I got out of the industry I'd been in, which I, I loved, I wasn't going to progress. So I, I'd um, put the word out to the network that we had around us and the network I'd developed over time. And my father's a professor of surgery. My mother's a medical scientist. Dad was one of the first people talking about diet causing disease back in the 70s. And so I had a lot of great contacts in health. And one of those was the managing director and CEO of Swiss at the time, which is Michael Saba. He's an inspirational fellow and a mentor of mine. And two years earlier, he'd asked me to come across to Swiss. Um, but the timing wasn't right for me and probably the role wasn't right. But by the time, you know, we reconnected and I was ready to move on, timing was right. And from there, it had got to a point where Michael and his business partner had grown the business from zero to 12 to 13 million and now being involved in a lot of startups, that's the hardest part of a business journey is that, that first 10 million in revenue. So the foundations were really strong and just needed my big company thinking and the ability to share accountability, hire people and allow them to think for themselves and, and be able to make decisions, obviously around parameters set through a strategic process. And that enabled the business to grow to, to you know, when I finished up there, which was around 700 million in turnover. Yeah, that's quite a journey. And, and, and that journey is continuing now with your new venture, Light Warrior, family office that, that's investing in all sorts of companies focused on wellness. How did your uh, your CEO skills transfer uh, over to venture capital? Knowing that I was going to leave Swiss, uh, in 2015, we did the deal. And then 30 minutes before the deal was signed, there was a clause put in that if I left uh, within 18 months, I could be sued, so it was 15 months, I could be sued for 100 million US, which would have wiped out most of the, the profit I'd made from um, selling Swiss. So um, I had to stay for 15 more months. And look, I, I was going to stay and transition with the group, but to be in a situation where I was forced to stay meant that there was a bit of a countdown to knowing that probably long-term it wasn't the place for me and was sold to a, a global company and all that travel and all those things had pointed to the fact that you know, it was time to let go and, 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 and put the business in the hands of an organisation that would take it to the next step. Um, so throughout that period, I was planning and working out what the next step was. And, you know, the feedback from people that had been in similar situations to what I'd been was to make sure that the music didn't completely stop, that there was something that I would go to. So uh, that feeling of exhaustion at the end of, you know, what was a, a really trying and, and um, challenging time and process to get us to where we're at, I, I didn't just fall in a heap and, and kind of have complete shock and also feel pretty isolated and then make rash decisions about the future. So I invested in, in, in thinking about that and, and got chatting with Adam Gregory, who sold our business on behalf of Goldman Sachs. And we really got on through the process and, and would send a lot to each other's eyes during challenging times. And we got through and got an exceptional result. So that bond was pretty special. And we got talking about, you know, life beyond the worlds we're in and the vision of Light Warrior came together. You know, I've got a wonderful business partner who has the best of experience in, in venture and investment and the language of finance. 
And then I've got all of these practical experience of running businesses. And so for me, supporting and being a coach and helping out and sharing the journey that I've been on with CEOs and roles that are hungry as ever to, to deliver results has been really thrilling. And I've been really enjoying that transition. And we've got over 10 different venture businesses we've invested in. And I'm on seven different non-for-profit boards, but I'm working nowhere near as hard as I was as a CEO. And I see all those different businesses as sort of different areas of the business of a very big business that I was responsible for. And we've got very capable people uh, running those businesses for us. So it's quite a joy and a great privilege to be a part of. And I mean, this focus on health, you know, brings back to this theme of like worry of wellness. And it's an interesting term that's popped up. What does it... What does it mean to you? What are you trying to achieve there? Well, health's one part of wellness, and we used to refer to the goal of achieving wellness at Swiss was through nutrition, so good food, movement, so exercise, walk, and then also um, mindfulness, and so our state of mind. And and so these are all um, the core of delivering wellness. And so if we get those three things right, we are truly well. And feeling great. And so when you reference things like uh, the importance of people, to me, that's, that's why wellness comes so naturally to me because you can't feel well unless you feel really good about the relationships around you, about the people you're working with. And then so if your state of mind's right, you start actually making all the right decisions about the sorts of foods you choose to eat. You want to eat better food so you get the more out of your life, you're more engaged, you're more conscious. And then your consciousness, so your, your state of mind and investing in, in, in looking after that state of mind through not only just having great people around you, but mechanisms such as meditation. So then you choose to do exercise because you want to look after yourself so you feel better about you know, your body and, and, and that you're able to bring your absolute best to um, any occasion. And, and you know, the, the most disappointing thing for me is when I'm not able to bring my best to something or if I'm, if I'm unwell. And so I like to, to review everything that's going on and make sure that I'm doing all I can to absolutely bring my best, to live out what is a true privilege in being in the situation I'm in where I can, I can do some pretty amazing things in, in the business world and also give back to society and, and feel very, very fulfilled as a result of that. Yeah, look, I'm really on board with all of this stuff. I think it's, it's super important and, and great to see that wellness is becoming a theme sort of within workplaces as much as just a, a personal choice. I mean, Pilates, you know, that really helped me with my back pain. Meditation has been a revelation in, in managing distractions and, and focus. I mean, it can be quite expensive. Is there a danger it's becoming elitist? Have you thought about how it can be scaled and offered to everybody? Yeah, I think that the great thing about meditation, it's not expensive. Um, so that's something that everyone can do. And, and we had 40, 50 people doing it every day at Swiss, which was a beautiful thing. It's not for everyone, but I had other form, forms of meditation or other things that I would do that, that would keep me active that I saw as essentially really important during times of stress. So, and those were taking the dogs for a walk every morning and on that walk, I'd bring my wife along. So I was in the best possible state of mind to have good communication with my partner. So our relationship would be in a better place. And that walk would take place in nature, in a park where trees were. So you could reconnect with nature. We all just feel better as a result of just getting out and getting some fresh air and doing that before the day starts getting away from us. And then investing in time by doing that walk, you know, you're getting 5Ks of movement. And then 
investing in a bit of time to do some exercise. And that exercise doesn't have to be in the gym. It can be 50 push-ups, 50 sit-ups and 50 squats and you're away for the day. And then nutrition as well, it's no more expensive to, to cook well for yourself than buy junk food from takeaway stores. It just takes a little bit of effort, but that effort's a really positive thing. It makes you conscious of what you're eating, aware of what you're putting in to your food and I'm ensuring you're getting the best for your body. And so Light Warrior, the fund, you've also got to focus on impact investing. You've helped to seed a fund called the Impact Fund. I'd love to hear, you know, what drew you to impact investing and what's the focus of the fund? So for me, every business has an opportunity to create an impact. This is the first stage of what we see as a big journey. And and so, yes, they're the, the obvious areas like investing in solar or investing in in housing for for the disabled or aged care, all of these these wonderful things that are services to our society or dealing with things like climate change. And so what we're seeing is you can invest in these areas and deliver returns that are very good and also relatively risk converse. So that's a great package. And, and so when you think about the returns of say 7 to 11% that our fund's starting to to generate, that's comparable to what a superannuation fund uh, would aim to generate. And so for me, I've always had this vision that if I was to get my super and I think about the first time I got it, I was a little bit confused as to you know, which way to invest it. Do I invest it in a balanced kind of portfolio or do I invest internationally or do I take some more risk and take high-risk investments? There's not an investment box that you can tick for impact and for social impact investment. So uh, for me, that, that was what I saw as the, the grander goal and the opportunity is that you know, in Australia, we have one of the largest pension funds in the world. And it would be wonderful if those funds were, you know, a significant portion of those funds were, were focused on impact investment. And then, you know, the other thing I challenge our, our team with is, you know, like you were just questioning whether wellness is, could be seen as elite if we're not aware of how unobtainable we can make it if, if we're too elite in the way we think about it by, you know, expensive courses and so forth that support wellness. It doesn't need to be that complicated. You know, same for impact investing. An organisation that's aspiring to have an extraordinary culture, for me, they're providing a massive social impact because if the four out of five people that work in businesses are happy about their 40 hours a week that they're doing, 40 plus hours a week they're doing in the workplace, gee, we're going to have a much happier society. And what I'm seeing at the moment is this global unrest, this lack of faith in capitalism, democracy, and this is all happening because people aren't as focused as they should be on culture. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned that it was the beginning of the journey and that, you know, solar is, is sort of a first step and that's been the way for a lot of impact funds. And obviously, you know, getting the big pools of money like the super funds involved would really help with that scaling. But how did you see the big vision sort of going forward? Well, I think the, the great thing is we believe we'll be able to get super involved in investing and thinking this way. And then, as I mentioned, being involved with the B team and, and other CEOs that are thinking this way, it's becoming the thing that businesses have to do. It's a bit like the fact is that businesses now need to think about their carbon footprint. And, you know, when, when at Swiss, 
you know, over 15 years ago when we were carbon neutral back then, it was called, and we got the accreditation to do that, you know, one of the only companies that were doing that and thinking that way, and the fact that we're an investment group that are a B Corp, you know, that's starting to change and there, there are more B Corps and I tried to make Swiss the first B Corp in Australia, but it was too early for that to happen back then. But that sort of thinking is now not left of centre or, or extraordinary. It's becoming the norm and it's becoming what consumers are, are demanding and customers are demanding and businesses have to change and adapt and governments will soon be the same and they'll follow business, but it's up to us as leaders of businesses to lead this change. You know, impact investing at the moment is kind of constrained to one end of the the investing spectrum down at the private equity kind of end. But from your perspective, which I think is unique, having run a big company like Swiss, could there be a future where these big companies would be measuring impact in the same way that currently niche impact firms are? Or, you know, what what could be a way that we could have that transmission to, to get the big multinationals on board? I think it would just take time. It's much like now that there are more B Corps. There are big organisations that are part of the B team. We're intuitively heading that way. And soon we'll work out metrics that, you know, businesses that have purpose can then track the impact that that has on people's quality of life. I talked to my own experience that so many people that came to work at Swiss, I would get huge thank yous from partners at home saying, my wife, my husband is just an extraordinarily different person and so much more positive than they've ever been as a result of working in your organisation. Now, if you can imagine that if every organisation was like that, how people would feel and how much better society would be, and that's real fulfilment. So I think that that dial will shift one day. And again, those organisations that are, can create an impact no matter what they're doing, as long as they've created a purpose for why they're going about doing what they do. Yeah, well, look, thanks for that. That's a really powerful story, sort of having that direct feedback from your staff, not even from your staff, from their families. And that should be what it's about. I think it's, you know, there's a view of work as being, you know, 100 years ago, people in the mines and having this industrial focus when now, you know, we've got an information sector that's corporatized. But yeah, the purpose does and the impact does have to come back to every day, how you operate and how you treat your staff and managing stress levels and, and all those sorts of things. So I think that's important and to have seen that you were able to manage that at scale at a huge multinational level. So that's really great. And you've mentioned B-Team a few times. You're a member of B-Team, which is not to be confused with B-Lab and their B-Corp certification. The B-Team, I believe, was founded by Richard Branson or he was involved there trying to set standards of corporate behaviour. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so Richard, uh, who's an amazing inspiration as an entrepreneur, who's one of the leaders, not only one of the first entrepreneurs on this planet, but also an entrepreneur who thinks about social purposes. And if you look at all of the philanthropic organisations that he's he's founded, the Beat team to the elders and, and many others, is a great inspiration. So I've been lucky enough to get to know him over the last few years. And um, he asked me to be a part of the B team. But from an entrepreneur's point of view, um, the B team has CEOs and chair people of ASX top 200 list companies on that group. Some the guy that turns up in a T-shirt and just thinks about things a little bit differently and maybe looks at things from an investment point of view and whether or not you should be investing with an impact lens. And then 
that in turn is reflective when CEOs, you know, and, and also with my past experience in running an organisation, in how CEOs and chair people are thinking about culture in their organisations. And so this notion of culture, you know, 15 years ago was, was something that few organisations were talking about, but now it's massively shifted and, and businesses cannot be set up anymore just to plunder and be profit focused. And we're seeing massive change. And I was personally so warm by my experience of being part of the B team and hearing firsthand that things do need to change and we do need to provide more exceptional workplaces and more to our customers than just taking profit. And so the notion of the B team is that plan A isn't working, which is the path we've been on. And we need to work out plan B to create a sustainable system of capitalism and democracy. And, and I like capitalism. It's been great to me and it's been great for society. It's brought us forward in, the, in, in massive ways, but it doesn't mean that the old plan needs to stay the same way. It needs to evolve and get better and it needs to be more thoughtful and considerate of the individual. Yeah, and so it's great to hear that these CEOs are coming together, that they're having these conversations and these are the topics. But where does the, the rubber hit the road? Is there, what do you think is the pathway to, to make some real change? Does that have to be at the economic level? Is it more of a, a government regulation type focus? Or is it simply relying on capitalism and, and, and providing what customers want and staff as well, which is a positive culture and, uh, and a product that aligns with their values? One thing that I've, I continue to see by personal example and, and hear from other CEOs and, and leaders is that this conscious method of doing business is more successful. And so if we look to capitalism, the most successful thrive. And so this is what gives me faith that if we all start to make this change and lead this change on going beyond just delivering profits and demanding more from the organisations that we work with and choose to buy from, or you know, relate to from a, a customer point of view and demand more from them that they are doing more than just focus on profits. They're thinking about the planet. They're thinking about the quality of workplace. They're thinking about what they do to give back to community. These things will ultimately win out. So I have faith that we, we'll, we'll get there. It just takes time. Good stuff. Well, look. Speaking of time, I should let you go. You've got a, a little one that, you're, uh, that you've just got off to sleep and, and you're over in LA investigating more businesses and, and doing deals. So I do need to let you go. But a final question, I'd love to get a book recommendation and, and maybe you can, uh, if there is one, uh, the last book you read more than once. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. It's the last book, uh, well, book recommendation and the last book I read more than once was one that I read and then I listened to it over a, um, an e-book. So does that count as reading it twice? I think so. So it was uh, The Golden Sequence, and it was by meditation coach, uh, Johnny Pollard. And it's an extraordinary read and well worth uh, listening to twice or reading, reading twice. All right, good stuff. And is that about the journey of, of him finding meditation or trying to help people get engaged with it? Or I think it's a bit of both. It's a journey, his personal journey, but it's also provides you with a whole lot of tools to deal with the chaos of today and get you game ready to make massive change in, the, in your circle of influence. Well, that's it. And, and I've certainly, you know, I was very cynical about meditation for a long time, but I think it was a major back injury that laid me out for a while. And um, yeah, I really engaged with it. I found Headspace, you know, a really sort of quick and easy way to get into it. 
how have you found it? Do you have any other ways that you think people that hear these words and, they, you know, they hear people talking about it and they think, oh, that might be all right. But I mean, I think the paradox is that people say, no, no, my mind moves too fast. I can't focus when I meditate. And obviously these, these are the people that need it the most. So what advice do you give to people that are a bit, bit confused about how to get involved? I love asking people if they brush their teeth every day and they generally say yes. And if they have a shower every day, they'll generally say yes. And they'll ask what they do for their mind. And, and you know, they pause and their mind's their most important asset. And so we need to take time for our mind. And, and I, I liken it to exercise. You know, not all of us love to run 10 kilometres, but some of us might like to do yoga or, we, you know, we find an exercise that we really love and want to do, surfing. You know, it depends on what agrees with your body best. And it's the same thing with meditation. You need to go on a journey and find what works for you. It should never feel painful. You should look forward to meditating as much as someone that looks forward to going to the gym and working out. That's what's agreeing with their body. You should feel vital and more engaged as a result of the meditation you choose. So if you're not liking the practice you're practicing, don't carry on with it. Choose another form. There's so many different forms of great meditation available to it. Strive until you find one that agrees with you most. It can't be a chore. And I think making it as easy as possible is vital. You know, I've heard some people say that, oh, it's just another thing I have to do in my morning. And so that's obviously never going to be sustainable. But as you said earlier on, you know, you just, the simplest thing of um, going for a walk with your wife and the dog, you know, it's something that you need to do. You walk out the door, but you're ticking so many boxes there. You're building your relationship, you're getting fit, you're engaging with your dog and you're in nature. So super easy. And yeah, you don't have to pay a gym fee when you go for a walk around the block. <laughs> exactly. All right, mate. Well, let's leave it there. Really appreciate your time today. And uh, I'll definitely keep an eye on, on the businesses that you're building. And uh, hopefully we can catch up again soon. Great. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Cheers, mate. All the best.